Hello and welcome to Across the States, the premier state policy podcast from the American Legislative Exchange Council. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. Today, we begin the first of a two-part series on the war in Ukraine. Over the past three weeks, Carla Jones, our senior director of Alex Federalism International Relations Task Force, has been in contact with and arranged two separate interviews with Mykola Vorobyev, a Ukrainian journalist and Austrian Marshall Plan Foundation fellow who is in Kiev right now. Our two interviews were conducted just before the invasion on February 22, 2022, and on the 15th of March. These two interviews have been broken up into two separate podcasts, but they are essential and great listening for those who want to understand what happened in the days leading up to the conflict, as well as what's going on right now. Mykola Vorobyev holds master's degrees in management economics from Kiev National University of Trade and Economics. Since Russia's annexation of Crimea and further escalations in eastern Ukraine, Mykola had covered the most recent developments as a military journalist on the front lines of Ukraine's eight-year war in the Donbass. In 2017, he was nominated for the Austrian Marshall Plan Foundation Fellowship at John Hopkins University SAIS program. The topic of his research was countering Russian informational aggression in Ukraine and the whole of Europe. And despite all the challenges that come from recording a podcast in the middle of a war zone, from the audio technical problems to disconnecting internet and more, Mykola Vorobyev was gracious and kind enough to sit down with Carla Jones and I not just once, but twice. We hope you enjoy the first of our two-part series in this podcast. Thank you, Matt, and thank you so much, Mikola, for making the time to record this podcast at such a challenging time in your country. As Matt referenced, we're recording on Tuesday, February 22nd, and yesterday, Russia's President Vladimir Putin declared Donetsk and Luhansk as independent republics. Um, a rough equivalent would be if the United States declared Quebec province a uh, People's Republic independent of Ottawa. Nicola, where are you now? Obviously not precise coordinates, just a general location within Ukraine so that we, we know what you are seeing on the ground. Uh, thanks, Carla. Thanks, Matt. And uh, thanks uh, for your, the, for, to your organization for having me. So basically, just uh, uh, in a nutshell about my background, usually I'm traveling back and forth between the United States, Washington, D.C., particularly Kiev, and uh, the front lines over the last eight years since the annexation of Crimea on February 20th. Actually, uh, it was uh, yesterday, yeah, so it was it's very symbolic to Putin to recognize these two republics on eighth anniversary of the annexation, when the first green man appeared, little green man, so-called, which was where a Russian regular troops in on the Ukrainian peninsula, uh, they appeared and actually they seized the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, so basically I'm kind of a scholar journalist and just uh, to uh, educate Ukrainian audience about American uh, situation, about uh, Ukrainian affairs, and uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, try to, how to say, navigate American politics, uh, American policy in, in this region. So uh, the, um, currently, I'm based in Kiev. And what is the general mood where you are right now in Kiev? Well, uh, I would say it's not as the media describes. <laughs> Usually, you know, so people are, uh, you know, when you are uh, on uh, eight years uh, or uh, uh, when it's your ninth years since the beginning of this war, I would say it's 
started push as many maybe might, might think people in the west especially so this is a kind of hi- hybrid warfare so basically uh you see if uh, or, uh you you travel just 20 miles away from the battlefield and you see like a normal life so there is a night uh, uh, different clubs restaurants everything open and it, nothing says about that the war is going on somewhere just 20 miles away so Kiev is more calm uh it's it's very visible that many people apparently they left the city due to this um escalation they probably decided to leave uh the capital many some of my friends they left with their families but it's not as dramatic i would say so everything uh, all remains open electricity yes we became all, all these facilities so it's like uh, normal life yeah that's one of the things americans forget about ukraine has been at war for eight years and what 14,000 casualties yeah. you think the country has taken uh, around 14,000. Yeah. Yes, yes. Around 14,000 casualties, uh, according to your OSC, um, uh, and uh, 7% of Ukrainian territory uh, is grabbed by Russia, including Crimea. So Crimea and one-third of the Donbass, which is in the eastern Ukraine, uh, and for Ukraine, uh, most of the access, so, uh, Ukraine does not control 400 uh, uh, kilometers. It would be roughly maybe 165 something in miles uh, of their uh, border. So basically, which allows Russians to flee their, they, they call it humanitarian aid, but basically they send their weapons, the regular troops, instructors uh, through this border, which are, are un- not under the Ukrainian control, to the so called republics of DNR LNR. And you mentioned the hybrid warfare that's been going on. Could you describe some of the cyber attacks that Russia's been launching and also the um, bot texts that people in, I think, Western Ukraine especially are receiving, um, talking about bomb threats and things like that? Uh, well, Carla, uh, uh, so that's, that's, that's another type which was... Uh, Maybe people who are um, more deep into this um, details, so the so-called like Gerasimov doctrine, so the Gerasimov, he is the chief of the military staff uh, in uh, Russia. He's like Russian general, and he is uh, author of the hybrid warfare. So basically, which kind of invisible war? Uh, it may be it, it may be both conventional and non-conventional. They use cyber attacks. They use econo- they use. Uh, meddling of the local politics, meddling of the elections maybe, uh, also on the, uh, economic uh, energy blockade and uh, other kinds of tools just to destabilize the country, not only from the uh, using the military uh, hard power, but also this uh, internal conflicts, you know, just by the like divide and conquer. So that's why basically Russians use it in Ukraine as a testing ground. And then they try to, if it's success, they try to apply it to other uh, countries, uh, which they consider as their enemies. And Ukraine gained independence in 1991. Why do you think Putin decided that this was the year he could no longer tolerate a sovereign Ukraine? Was he seeing a window of opportunity closing? Or what was his thinking? Well, uh, Carla, 
So this is so I would say the country Ukraine uh, in 2000, particularly 2014. So I would remind so what happened to to, to the audience. So that time the pro-Russian president Yanukovych he ruled the country, and then due to his uh, brutal how to, to uh, because uh, the some uh, local protests, the people went to protest uh, uh, against his um, uh, rejection to sign the EU association agreement. So the country was on its full uh, speed to the European Union. And one of the keys to the European Union was uh, to sign this EU association tre treaty, which uh, at the last moment, uh, although uh, decided to uh, sign the document, he actually, uh, uh, he, he, he just, uh, he just uh, 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 he rejected this. Uh, and before he met with Putin, Putin promised him a three billion of dollars of loan, and he pressured him not to sign the EU agreement because uh, for Putin it meant uh, means the uh, uh, losing of Ukraine for the European Union for NATO, which Putin considered as a threat to the Russian security and uh, you know like for Russian security in the region. As he still keep, uh, keeps considering Ukraine as a part. Uh, Russian world, so-called Ruski Mir, which is a uh, like kind of Russian ideology, which means that uh, Ukraine has to be a part of the Great Russia. So he's trying to restore uh, some scholars. They say he's rest he restores the Soviet Union, but I would say he's rather restored the Russian Empire, like it was in the 19th century, when the part of Ukraine, half of Ukraine, actually on the uh, left bank of Ukraine, which is divided by the Dnieper River. I would say was a part of a Russian Empire. So he is obsessed with this idea, and uh, he reminds. Uh, 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 he mentioned it also yesterday in his address to the uh, Russian Duma Parliament, and he said so. The Ukraine does not exist. That's the that's um, uh, artificial uh, uh, that the country which was. Um, uh, artificially created or somehow by the Bolsheviks in 1917. And uh, it has to be at least half of it, like Russian-speaking population, uh, has to, uh, they just keep, uh, they, they wait, uh, they want to join Russia, they want to be with Russians, and then they don't want to go to the European Union and or join the NATO. And thank you for bringing up that speech. To me, it seemed kind of unhinged. Were you as surprised as I was that he escalated so quickly, um, especially given the fact that he was talking about, yeah, I'll meet with President Biden and other Western leaders. Then all of a sudden, it's like he went from, I'll meet with Western leaders to, I am invading and declaring independence for Donetsk and Luhansk. Were you surprised by the speed? Uh, well, that's a good question. So uh, the people who uh, follow this development, including myself, so basically, uh, personally, I was not surprised because uh, uh, despite the official recognition of these two so-called republics, which are uh, about 4 million people both, uh, I would say that the Russian military presence was there since the beginning. So there was no any intention on these territories to join Russia, to uh, to rise some kind of the separatism uh, before Russians invaded or they sent their mercenaries there 
and they actually inspired the separatists by sending military aid and so forth to how to say to rise that uh, how to say uh, the sentiments uh, of the separatists. So it was cultivated, it was organized from the beginning by Moscow. So now they just go and recognize this as a, those two so-called uh, LNR and DNR as a republic. But, uh, I mean, they were already there. So their military instructions, uh, instructors, they participated in the active uh, um, uh, on, on the battlefield, uh, including during the main military clashes. So Russians and Moscow, the two are puppet regimes, are controlled, uh, are financed and supported uh, by Moscow. So nothing new for me, but uh, now the stakes, Putin is rising the stakes. Why? Because uh, by recognizing those two republics, it means so before they have to hide their presence. They say those are not our troops. Uh, they had to hide their uh, military affiliation. They are Russian. They were Russian regular troops, and now they invaded like openly, just underline un underline that they are just uh, a part of. How, how, so so they use their military openly right now, and nobody knows. For now, what happened, because poor Ukrainian regular army used to fight uh, the separatists. So there were not Russian. Putin did not recognize Russian presence in these territories. So they are officially there. So what would happen if there is a military clash between regular Russian troops, not the separatists, but official regular Russian troops, and the Ukrainian army? So that's why many scholars and people are concerned uh, about the probably military escalation, now with the regular Russian army. The thing is, Ukraine is a very different country than it was in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea and first invaded the Donbass. Would you mind describing some of those differences in terms of military strength, um, public opinion of Russia, which has changed a lot, and Ukraine's economic strength? It seems to me that Putin might have bitten off a little more than he can chew. Uh, again, Carla, okay, so uh, I, I just want to just to introduce the situation, what was before the, before the Russian invasion. So the Ukrainian army, it was, so, uh, it was at the very, uh, how the, the, I would say not even the low, but at the very primitive level. Uh, the main advantage of the Ukrainian army is, uh, of course, is uh, uh, the... Uh, Manpower, right? So basically, the number of the Ukrainian army was uh, at, uh, at this point is around 250,000 people, men and women. And uh, before that, uh, although it was uh, also very like big by numbers, by the uh, quantity, but not by the quality. So let me put just an example that during the time of the pro-Russian president Yanukovych, the minister of defense, he was Russian. So uh, official by a Russian citizen. So basically, the army in 2014. I always uh, uh, say to tell to, to the American audience, especially. So the situation when the Russian invaded, when they annexed Crimea and there uh, then invaded Donbas. So Ukrainian army was even scared to shoot at the enemy. Also, it's even more complicated because those people on that side of the barricades, I mean, the separatists and the Russian-backed separatists and the Russian regular army and the mercenaries, they are also Russian speakers. 
so, so many people have were relatives. So, for example, so many generals uh, who uh, graduated during the Soviet Union, for example, they served during the Soviet invasion in Afghanistan, and they have a very close uh, relationship with the Russian generals. So, who became their uh, overnight? They become their enemies, and they had to call each other and just to figure out what's going on because. Before they were like brother on uh, arms, and they it, ha- it turned out to uh, so they became like the they had to shoot each other. That's that's a, a complicated because the, uh, the the Ukraine Ukraine was a part of the Soviet Union. This was very integrated into the Soviet uh, Russian uh, Russian uh, institution, and the main the military academy or the main high schools and. Uh, so on the education um, uh, facilities, they were in Moscow on Saint Spe- or Saint Petersburg. So many Ukrainian generals who command the army at the beginning of conflict in 2014, they were graduated from Russia, for example. That's the complicated stuff. But uh, in the meantime, so the patriotic feelings and so forth, uh, they it helped army just somehow to restore itself. There was a big volunteer and uh, volunteer uh, movement, so that when the people who lack, uh, who did not have any military experience, they just went to the volunteer battalions, for example. They fought the enemy uh, with their uh, home rifles, you know, even sometimes weapons from their enemies from the, uh, from on the battlefield. So I always remind to, the, uh, to my American friends, so it's like 1776. You know, so the lack of the army, just the patriotism, and so forth. And since then, the army has increased, I mean, by numbers and quality and quantity. Of course, it became more patriotic. Uh, it was, um, uh, so just by numbers, uh, before we spent about uh, around 1% of our GDP, just 1%. Now it's up to 6%. So it's even higher than many NATO members, right? The Germany or France, for example. So now it's around uh, ten billion dollars. Uh, so, which a lot for in comparison to uh, Ukrainian uh, GDP, for example, with uh, other uh, NATO countries. So, and of course, many people who are graduated, for example, uh, who are, uh, who were teenagers in their teens, right? For example, during the invasion. So it's since uh, uh, after eight years of war, so we got a new generation of very patriotic um, officers. Uh, men and women in uniform who graduated, who just joined the army, knowing there is an active war, and they just do did it their choice. They joined the militaries, and they understand who their enemy is actually, and especially it's very visible among the young people. Uh, and yeah, it has changed dramatically. That's why, uh, in terms of again, uh, there's of numbers. So, uh, just for example, uh, now Ukraine have uh, has around four hundred thousand. Uh, veterans. So people who went to the war, the military experience, and who are ready to get back to on the front lines and defend their country. So it was, it won't, for sure, it will not be an easy walk for Putin after these all developments. So basically, he will definitely understand, he definitely understand this, and it was not like easy grabbing of land when Ukraine was really unprepared, and thanks to God to our Western uh, allies and our patriotic society who sacrificed, many of them sacrificed their lives to defend the country. So now it won't be easy work and our uh, army is much more prepared in comparison to what it was eight years ago.
And what do the Ukrainian people think of Zelensky's leadership? Well, <laughs> yeah, we, we agreed to discuss any questions, but yeah, actually, I, I, I'm a private person, so I would express my own view. Well, so the main stuff, uh, basically, uh, the main issue is for Putin is that Ukraine, as a post-Soviet republic, as a as a being like a they kept like brotherly nation to Russia, you know, they they don't call it we are one how people call one nation so those people after two revolutions i remember the first was in 2004 the Irish revolution so people want to get more detail they can google it or so again so the country is democracy so since 2014 when the president after yanukovych in the end of the day he fled the country right and there was free and fair elections when president Poroshenko was elected and then parliamentarian elections, when we, where it was free and fair, it was just you know it was recognized by all like Ukrainian society, by all Western international observers, because due to it was a real it, it was a very democratic election. So basically, for me, I it, I, it, it will be a little bit long history to d- describe Zelensky as a personality, because he is he was he's not a I mean probably American audience will understand me because he is like anti-establishment, he is comedian, he is successful businessman, and so forth. So I would compare him, in many ways I would compare him to Trump. So the phenomenon of Zelensky 2019 and Trump 2016 it kind of sounds like, and I was that time in America, traveled there, it kind, some kind of familiar. So people are uh, obsessed with uh, uh, corruption, with this like, big government and so forth. So people want to change. So that's why they voted for Zelensky. Even though he was, he had another more advantage. Even Trump didn't have so, but he ran his TV show. It's called "Servant of the People." Over the four years, he played the president. So many people called them as a long uh, because people used to know him as the president because they they watched his show. And then it turned out that he decided to run for the president. But again, just uh, up to, uh, not going into political details, I would say the main difference between the Russian elections or Belarus elections or Ukrainian elections, Ukraine is democracy. So we can criticize our president. We can just, you know, like uh, criticize his decision. I mean, his his, his personality and so forth. But we can do it here openly without being like arrested or put into jail or something like this. What happened in Russia and Belarus? And Ukraine is democracy. It's a free country. It respects human rights. It declared its uh, path towards European Union and NATO. And that's why so people, Putin, he understands that he is uh, losing Ukraine at this point. It might be a part of the Western civilization, which is a direct threat to Russia. And of course, it's a matter of survival for Putin because he doesn't want Russian people to see successful Ukraine which will make them maybe also try to demand more from the Russian authorities. That's why he just destabilized the situation. And again, it's a matter of his, I would say, not only political, but the physical rival uh, in Ukraine, in this crisis. So basically, that's why there is no logic, there is no rationality, why he rises the stakes, because the price they pay is enormous. And they still keep doing, they still destabilizing the situation, knowing that there is no back uh, way to them, so they want either or. So it's like a zero-sum game to put.
The comparison of him to Trump is an interesting one. I've been comparing him actually to Ronald Reagan, another man who was an actor, although he did have some political experience before he became president, but started out as an actor. He he seems impressive to America. Uh, well, Carla, that's a good comparison. Uh, yeah, I, in general, I would agree with this, but I, I just just in, in, the, some uh, they did uh, some difference in Ukrainian or American politics, for example. <laughs> so uh, Reagan, he was elected when he was 60-something, right? He's 60. Yeah. He was a governor. He was a governor of California. He was a member of the, the Republican Party and so forth. So Zelensky, <laughs> he is just a newcomer. Right. All his experience was just in the movie. So <laughs> he was a comedian and he had a zero experience. And again, so he brought his own party. So basically, it's very debatable who is more powerful, who was more powerful at that time, the Republican Party or Reagan. In, in terms of he, he owns his political party, seven, which the, with the same name, Seven of the People. So yep. it's a bit more complicated in terms of the political mechanism in Ukraine and in the United States. But I would say, I would... Yeah, it's 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 an, it's an, it's an interesting question, but he's uh, uh, he's learning fast. Um, have any have people begun trying to escape the Donbas, migrating into Western Ukraine? Like, has there been a migration crisis yet? Uh, well, so at this point, according again to the officials from the OSCE mission to Donbas, which one for it, only one you know, uh, authorized mission which operates in this, uh, on, on, in this, yeah, in, in this area. So uh, since uh, since uh, uh, the beginning of conflict, around three million of people. So so they, they so I, Donbass it it's a very industrial. So I would say maybe it's like West Virginia. Maybe so a lot of coal mines, a lot of people who were there. So who. Uh, during the Soviet times, and again, just to remind, so it was a very prestigious job to be a miner because it was a top. So they were they were very privileged, and they were like a was a like a top of the socialism. So they were cool. This top as a coal miner was cultivated, so they had the best car, the best like luxury lives, and so forth. So basically, it was very prestigious, and this was very uh, highly populated area with around seven million people before the war. So since the beginning uh, of this conflict, around uh, 3 million of them, they uh, became either refugees or IDPs, uh, so internal displaced people. So And uh, uh, approximately half of this, like one and a half million, they left for Ukraine, to Ukraine, and the re uh, another and a half, they left to Russia or to Crimea. That's the picture on the ground right now. And of course, about... Four million people. They remain on these occupied, called occupied territories, due uh, to different uh, obstacles. And also, basically, maybe some older people they can can leave, leave this area. Or many young they had to return back because they didn't find anything else. Because they have their uh, beloved, uh, have their friends, their relatives in these territories. Uh, it's approximately four million people there right now. If Putin were to permanently somehow annex 
Donetsk and Luhansk, how would that affect Ukraine economically? Well, uh, again, uh, uh, I, I, I was, that's, uh, as I mentioned, it's a seven, seven percent of the territory, Crimea, and this uh, one third of the uh, territory is Crimea, and uh, so Ukraine suffers badly due to the, the Ukrainian factories and the industry, especially in the southern and the eastern parts of Ukraine industry. It is still dependent on this coal from that territory. So even those uh, and the, this energy other sources, which on that uh, or are which on the uh, which uh, are on the territories where which are not uncontrolled territories. So basically, it was a big debate before 2017 over if Ukraine has to trade with those so-called republics. Because uh, on the other hand, uh, you, it means that you feed your enemy. Because you import the coal and you pay them with the cash. And for that cash, they may uh, pay for their uh, militia, which are uh, shooting uh, at the Ukrainian army. But on the other hand, again, it's like a hybrid war. So there is not a clear front line. It means that it's undeclared war. Basically, so... We, uh, the, the, uh, the opposite side, they said, well, so our people live there. So one of those people, they are not enemies. They are people under the occupation, but they are Ukrainians. And in the end of the day, we have to liberate these territories, and these people will be reintegrated back into Ukraine. So basically, it was very debatable before, before the shutdown of this trade in 2017, when we stopped import this uh, uh, coal and Officially, did not start uh, import this uh, coal and other uh, raw materials from that uh, territories. But again, as you Carla mentioned, so we suffered by I would say uh, 13% of uh, our uh, industry was um, uh, industrial potential in, uh, was lost on that uh, in that territories. Again, that uh, some military uh, facilities. Uh, some military factories which were located, they were also lost. Uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 I can't uh, remember for numbers at uh, this point, but I think it's about uh, roughly 13% of our um, uh, economy. And what which do is you... uh, pretty decent numbers. And what do you think? Putin's endgame is? Is he going to stop in the east? Is he going to proceed westward? What do you think his ultimate goal is? I mean, I, I know it's to reincorporate Ukraine, but do you think he's actually going to follow through with that in the coming weeks? Uh, well, this year, uh, we, there isn't, uh, we commemorate, right, uh, the so in 2007, in Munich, during the, confer uh, the security conference, uh, Putin uh, mentioned the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest uh, geopolitical tragedy to the Soviet Union and to him personally. As being an officer at that time serving in Dresden, which was part of the uh, uh, Soviet camp, for yeah, East Germany. the collapse of the USSR was his personal, uh, yes, East Germany, 
uh, it was a well-deserved uh, KGB operative. Uh, it's a personal drama to him, first of, first of all. Uh, but uh, uh, and and yeah, of course, and he first he declared it back in 2007, like 15 years ago. And then well, we remember the Bucharest summit when Ukraine and Georgia they were denied of uh, membership action plan of for NATO. And then, like in uh, four months, uh, Georgia was invaded and uh, the. Uh, Russian troops, they crossed, uh, they already occupied the South Asia and Abkhazia, which uh, were also recognized within even the same template. If you go and see the template, the recognition of this republic, all the name uh, has been changed, you know, to the DNR, LNR Republic. But even the template, the text remains the same. So basically, and uh, it seems that he wants to restore the... Russian Empire, Soviet Union, again, it's just uh, open to that. Uh, it's debatable right now, but basically he wants to preserve their opinion. He wants to show the West that uh, Russia reminds a superpower. It has to be treated as a, as a superpower. And it seems he wants Yalta too. He understands that uh, the post-Yalta, after the post-World War II, uh, system is obsolete right now, and he wants to withdraw the border. He wants to restore the power of Russia, the Soviet Union, so everybody are scared, the West is afraid, and of course it, it won't be impossible for him to establish a bipolar world where which was dominated by the West uh, and the Soviet Union, but now he wants to be uh, at the table uh, with the other uh, great powers uh, like NATO, um, uh, uh, United States, China, and maybe yeah, so that he wants to be as uh, in this uh, to play this uh, high league. So that's that's his main goal, I think. So and again, uh, Putin doesn't want he doesn't need to control just Lugansk and Donetsk to this uh, break up republics. Uh, occupied republics. Uh, he wants to control whole Ukraine, and he declared it yesterday. He declared it again openly. He wrote many articles on this, including just uh, just to remind the article oh, in July when he said that Ukrainians they are not exist. There is no uh, nation of Ukraine, and he said that it's just not even to the president George W. Bush. Uh, at his, uh, during the, the personal meeting, he says, uh, "Well, the Ukrainians they don't exist." It was back in was before the invasion of Georgia in 2006, probably, yeah, or 2007. And so he wants to redraw uh, the, uh, the border by the military measures and, uh, the, and, and others uh, using the hybrid warfare and, you know, just, just to... Uh, he wants the collapse of Ukraine. He wants to restore uh, uh, the domination of Russia. And he wants the West to be scared, to be afraid of Russia and not to proceed with NATO uh, toward the Russian border. You've been listening to the first of the two-part series brought to you by Across the States on the ongoing war in Ukraine with Mikola Vorobiev, Ukrainian journalist and Austrian Marshall Plan Foundation fellow, and Carla Jones, our Senior Director of Alex Federalism International Relations Task Force. To listen to part two of our two-part series on the war in Ukraine with Mikola Vorobiev, go either to podcast.alec.org 
click the link in the description, or to simply go to the homepage of Across the States on whatever application you use to listen to Across the States. The second interview will be right there. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.